Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Hasban, here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yuma Daf Yutet, page 19. Well, this really gives us a nice sort of, of filling in of many of the things we discussed in the Mishnah from our previous daf about what was the process or what happened to the Kohen Gadol uh, to prepare him on Erev Yom Kippur. And I just want to point out two things here um, that I thought was interesting, and before I hand it off to you, um, and then I was very excited by what was at the end of the daf, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, the first is, is that they're going through all the different rooms uh, that were in the um, Beit HaMikdash, and one of the things they talk about is the Lishkar HaGazit, this chamber of what we call the Hewn Stone. Sanhedrin Shel Yisrael Bidana Et And that's where the Sanhedrin, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin of 72 would sit, and we see one of their interesting duties here that they did was, was that they actually had to judge the Kohanim. Umish is nim sabo psul, right? Any coin who had some sort of disqualification, chorim they would, he would basically clothe himself in black and wrap his head in black. The yatsav halachlo, and he would leave the, the lishkar gazit and basically leave the azara, leave the courtyard itself of the Beit HaMikdash. And a Kohen who no psul was found in, he would clothe himself in white and wrap his head in white. He would enter and serve with his other Kohanim. And so one of the things we learn here is that a primary job of the Sanhedrin, um, because, you know, I always thought like the Sanhedrin was there because it makes sense, like that's sort of the spiritual center of us as a people. So then you would have the Sanhedrin there as sort of the judicial center. But here, this Brisa teaches us something a little different, that there was a practical reason for it. You needed to have the Sanhedrin there because they actually in very close real time had to do a lot of judging about the Kohanim itself. And sometimes had to determine, was this coin actually eligible or was this coin not eligible to serve? Um, and so, you know, again, it, this gave reason about why the Sanhedrin was actually there. So I think before I speak, I should apologize to everybody. I seem to have lost half my voice. I don't know where it has gone. I feel fine. Thank you all. You know, whatever. I'm going to try to speak a little bit slower and a little bit clearer. Um, I hope it's intelligible. Um, Yardena, I think what I find particularly both interesting and disturbing about this stuff is how much concern had to be paid to the, to the question of whether the Kohen was fit to serve, whether he was really, you know, there with honorable intentions. The whole thing of it really seems like, it, you know, it, it can't have been just a one-off, crazy, insane case, right? Because they would not have all this halacha set up to catch a Tzaduki, a Sadducee, or whatever, right? Or somebody who's not fit for other reasons, if really it was no problem and every Kohen would come forward, would of course be totally right for the job. I find it really sad that the Kohanim, at least in Bayachini, were not right for the job. I agree with you. And we see that tension. It's been throughout this Masachet, but it very much comes to a head on this particular dap. And I know you're going to talk about the Tzaduki issue in one second, but one other thing that I thought was interesting here is, you know, there's this whole discussion with Rav Papa about the two chambers that the Kohen Gadol used, the Lishkat um, Parhedrin and then the Avnitas one. And the question was, you know, wh which one was in the north, which was in the south? And very cleverly, Rapapa say, well, if he had to walk this way and go from this to this, this must, this one must have been in the south and this, you know, this one had to be in the north. Um, and then, you know, 
because otherwise Rav Papa says, because otherwise it was like a burden to him. Like it wouldn't make sense. Right. Otherwise you would have um, burdened him. If you were going to say uh, the parhedron, the uh, parhedron chamber was in the North and the Avit Nas one was in the South. So it has to be, it's reversed. The parhedron one is in the South and the Avni, the Avtinas one was in the North. But then the Gemara says, why not? You know, Maybe we should be burning him to eat Suduki who leafroach because if he was a Suduki, right, it'll make him not want to be uh, the Kohen Gadol because it's going to be too much of a bother. Now, I don't know that walking around so much is too much of a bother, but even the thought that like you'd want to burden him a little bit to sort of disin- disincentivize a Suduki from trying to be the Kohen Gadol. Uh, but alternatively, we say it's also that he doesn't become so haughty. In other words, it shouldn't be made that the layout is so convenient for the Kohen Gadol. I happen to like that answer um, a little. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to give another example about why they think that is, because they basically say, you know, you didn't really need to even have two chambers altogether. He could have just used one chamber. But the fact that we have two shows that, you know, making things a little inconvenient for the Kohen Gadol was a way of sort of keeping him in check. And so, you know, also seeing on the top that they're sensitive to, like the Kohen Gadol could be very aware that he's the Kohen Gadol, but doing sort of some of these little things to sort of, you know, keep the Kohen Gadol a little bit humble. Um, yes, I actually like the, I don't know what, the discrepancy between these two approaches. I think you have to have a reason to do it even if the person's not a Tzaduki, right? You have to have a reason that to be concerned or that you would even ask about this distance. I thought that part of the um, part of the question, right? Alamalo, why why not impose it on the Kohen to have to do this extra labor? I thought that it went beyond simply walking from one to the next, uh, one chamber to the next. I thought that it also involves the fact, like you know, he gets up very early in the morning that morning, and he is you know kind of bombarded all the day long. And maybe I'm looking at it as you know maybe in the context it may have been much uh, a much narrower question, but I do think that the larger question is legitimate, right? Like why is it that the Kohen Gadol is kind of so, I, I want to say so engaged, so, but so stressed to make sure that he's doing everything, right? Why not have it a division of labor and have many more people involved, for example, right? Meaning that's something that could have happened. So if the goal is to make sure that your main guy is truly honest, then you want him doing it. And if your main goal is to make sure that your main guy doesn't, um, you know, get too haughty in his position, he's a legit person, he's fit for the role, um, but you don't want him to get too big for his britches, then this makes sense to me, right? That there should be much more involving him over the course of the, the day the and all of this time. We shouldn't worry about burdening him. I think that's the real way to say it. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. All right, now we got to get on to the Tzedukim. Okay, so, right, so coming off of, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit, but coming off of this question of, you know, maybe we are going to, we're, we're going to burden him so that we can, you know, kind of wear him out and make sure that if he is a Tzaduki, it will come out, right? We will we will discover this, right? So so this is, some of this I think, Dana, you actually referred to yesterday or two days ago, right, that was in the Mishnah, that they separate and they cry. And the question of why are they crying? He is crying because they, they were suspicious of him to begin with. Meaning, 
whether he's a tzaduki or not, the fact that they stopped to be suspicious of him is itself its own challenge. And all the more reason, if he's not a tzaduki, then they have been suspicious of somebody who is truly innocent, right? We call that choshe b'kshirim, choshe b'kshirim, from the word kasher, kosher. And and so Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, well, you should get malko, you should be whipped for this, meaning that that kind of false suspicion um, is completely unseemly. The Gemara continues, Why are they making sure, for example, one of the issues that the Kohen Gadol has to do is take an oath, right? He has to swear that he's going to do everything right, right? And they want to make sure that he doesn't mess with the procedure, not with the Ketoret, not, you know, because there were different, um, I guess, interpretations of how this should be done whether you were with the Prushim, the what's called the Pharisees, you know, the rabbinic uh, followers, the rabbinic class, or if you were a Tzaduki. And it's not that the Tzadukim had no method of interpretation. They did, and it was rather different, right? Meaning they focused much more, let's say, in what they felt was the plain sense of the written law. At least that's the tradition about them. I have never gone through to compare exactly what their positions are. But, but the point is here, though, that the test here of how is he going to do the Ketoret? Will he make a Shavua? Will he take an oath? And so on. All of this is to say, to make sure that this guy, this Kohen Gadol, who is doing the Avoda, about to be doing the Avoda, is not um, not a Tzaduki. On the one hand, they do not want a representative who is a Tzaduki. On the other hand, it's really a concern for him. And then we have this terrible story. Tanarabanan. So now you know, right? It's gonna. There was an incident. It happened. There were. There was a tzaduki. So what does he do? He prepared his incense outside, and then he brought it into the kodesh kodashim, which is not the way you know he was expected to do it. And so when he comes out, he's overjoyed because he succeeded. He did exactly what he planned to do. Very nice. Pagabo Aviv. So the father of this same guy, of the Suduki, sees him and says, listen, Amarlo, Beni, anu, even though we are in fact Sudukim, we are still concerned about the Prushim. We're still fearful that they, you know, we don't we're not going to really try to subvert their practice. And then the son says, Amarlo, this is how they come to interpret the verse differently. So the son says to the father, all of the, my days, meaning my whole life, I was worried about this or, or bothered by this verse. What's the verse in Vayikra, Ted Zion, uh, Leviticus ch- uh, chapter 16. <coughs> Excuse me. The Torah says, speaking about God, for I will appear in the cloud above the above the kaporet. The kaporet is the cover of the Arod. Is, I will appear there. Amarti, Mataya vo liadi vaikamenu. Akshav shabaliadi loikamenu. He says, How will I ever be able? When will I ever have the opportunity to do this? To 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 put the incense there at the kaporet, at the covering of the Aron. He says, You're telling me that I shouldn't do what we think we should do for the interpretation of this verse when I really finally have the opportunity to fulfill the verse itself. Obviously, I'm going to take that opportunity once he has a chance, right? That's what he says. So on the one hand, it sounds like we've got a triumph of the Tzudukim over the Prushim, meaning because this Kohen Gadol has, in fact, put one over on the Prushim. 
On the other hand, he's rebuked by his father that this is not the way they do things because there is, on the one hand, uh, a fight going on between them, but there also has to be some measure of respect, of respect because, and your Dana, we haven't talked about this at all, um, they did seem to be in some measure of cooperation, right? The Tudukim didn't leave temple worship in a huff. They participated. And whether or not, they kind of believed in the same system. So ideally, anyway, they should have like established one course of action and lived with it. But that's not exactly what happens. And of course, what he's done is wrong. And from a halachic standpoint, and we're about to see what happens. Yes, you want to say something? I think that's what's complicated with the Tadukim. It's different than like the category of mean that we often encounter in Mishnah and Gemara. This isn't somebody who's a heretic. It's somebody who has a different way of doing things. And as much as, you know, I always talk about how impressed I am that Gemara can sit with uh, and Mishnah can sit with Machlokas, you know, but this is a fundamental way of how to approach interpretation. And when you can't even agree on that, that's why it's really a different sect. But at the end of the day, they sort of do believe in, you know, Hashem, in the primacy of the Beit HaMikdash. And I think that's why it's even scarier in a way than somebody who's just a heretic. Okay, I think that's very well said. Um, and I think it's an important observation and something to, to keep in mind about the Tzidukim in general, right? It's not the othering, if we're going to bring it to modern parlance, the othering of the Tzidukim is a really different kind of thing than the othering of other, oh, sorry about that, of other um, heretics, non-believers, whatever. So what happens to this poor guy? I say this poor guy because I've read ahead. Amru, lo hayu yamim mu'atin ad shemet. It wasn't a few days past and then he's di- he died. Vutal ba'ashpa. And he is laid out in the on the garbage. I don't really understand that. Like, I'm not sure why he wouldn't have been handled better. By, unless he, I don't know, unless he died right there. Well, the I think that's theological. It's not only just that, you know, he died, but also his body was desolate. Oh, I mean, yes, I understand why the Gemara would present it this way. For sure. I'm saying if it, if we want to look at it as actually historical account, a historical account, you know, whatever. Okay, so what happens? It's worse than just being at the garbage. Um, there were worms coming out of his nostrils. So this is actually a, a question of when exactly did this happen? Right, so either it's a few days that pass later, past he dies, he's laid out on the garbage dump, worms are coming out of his nose. We understand, everybody understands that this is punishment for the subversion that he did with the incense in the Kodesh Kodashim. Or alternatively, says the Gemara, alternatively, he was struck, meaning that this befell him right when he emerged from the Kodesh Kodashim, which was Rabbi Chia's position, namely that they heard in the in the Azara, right, when they were out in the courtyard. Nobody's in there in the Kodesh Kodeshim with him, right? So that they heard a sound, and the narrative here says that an angel came and struck him in the face, and then everybody had to come and take him from there, and they found, and this is really interesting, really interesting, they found the footprint of um, the leg of a calf between his shoulders, 
Bekaf Regalayim, Bekaf Regal Agala, Egal, sorry. Right? And the mark, the feet were the straight feet. The sole of the feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. This is a verse from Yechezkel, where Yechezkel, you know, is known for his vision of the, what we call Masem Merkava, the vision of the heavenly chariot. And he sees, you know, to whatever extent this means, he sees God. So if you learn Yechezkel, and you can delve into this for a very long time, what does it mean that Yechezkel saw God? Well, at the very least, he saw his chariot appearing. And it seems that it is possible that what he saw was some kind of figure or depiction, or it's not clear. But what is clear is that the verse describes it as, you know, the cloven hooves of a calf's, of calves' legs, calves' feet. And so to say that the Kohen Gadol was struck, right, by the foot of a of a calf. Um, once you put it together with that verse in Yechezkel, it's kind of a shocking commentary, as if God Himself came and struck this coin got all down for the chutzpah, for the temerity that He had to mess with the avodat Yom Kippurim. Um, the vision of Yom Kippur, of Yechezkel, I'm sorry, the vision of Yechezkel is its own very very difficult uh, topic, um, and the idea that both Yechezkel and the Gemara here can be presenting God as if he's got a body and that body, what, is it partially an animal? Like, it's a very theologically disturbing and complicated thing to think about. So I would suggest that, for the moment anyway, we table that aspect of the discussion but understand that what is happening here, what they attest to when they see that, oh my goodness, he was struck down, it's the idea of, first of all, the immediacy of the time, even if it's a few days later, Certainly, if it's right when he leaves the, the Kodesh Kodeshim, it's a sense that God is here and he is saying, no, that was the wrong way to go. When you go in to do the, your Avodah in the Kodesh Kodeshim, you messed up my, my procedure for the incense and you're going to pay. You're going to be an example. And everybody knows that. So how it really happened that God comes down to handle it is a separate question. I think the fact that God comes down to handle it uh, as a very clear indictment of his process I think is very, very valuable for us to understand. Like, that's how important this was. Yeah, it's a very theological depth. And I think it's really trying to show us, like, God is on the Prussian side. Um, don't worry, God is not on the Suzuki side. Um, I want to jump to one last thing, which made me so happy at the depth. So the next Mishnah basically talks about a procedure that was done. You know, if the coin guzzle wanted to fall asleep, what would they do? And the young Kohan would come and snap in front of him. And then the Gemara... Um, uh, describes the following here. You know, in other words, what, what they would do to keep him, they quote a Brysa here, what they would do to keep him busy until it was time to really start the Avoda. Tana. They would not keep him occupied by entertaining him with a lyre or a harp, but rather by mouth, right? So in other words, uh, yes, you could play him an instrument, but here it's basically saying that they would... Um, they would they would sing, um, amrin, and what is it that they would sing? Im Hashem lo shava amlo bonav, right? If Hashem will not build the house, uh, sort of like in, uh, in vain do its builders labor on it. And this is a very famous pasuk from Tehillim, um, Kuf Kaf Zion pasuk bet. Um, it's uh, it, one of the uh, one of the actually Shir Hamalos. Um, but when I saw it, so this is the song that they would say. Um, and uh, then the Brisa goes on to say, Mikrei Yerushalayim, lo hayu shanin kalalayla. Some of the people in Yerushalayim would not sleep all night. Kedei sheishma, kohen gadol kol havrasa. The kohen gadol 
would hear the sound of their voices, and sleep would not overcome. In other words, the whole city would stay busy, so he would stay up all night. Um, but what I loved particularly about this pasuk, as many of you may know, this actually is a very famous Hasidisha song. We will actually post this um, on the Facebook page. Um, it's uh, by the Shem- well. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to add it so that you can hear it here at the end yeah, as well, we. We'll add as some of it. Enter. Okay, we'll add as some we, of that. I, I don't know. Anne's gonna try to do this after we record, so we'll see if it actually uh, works. But it's basically um, this is the Shira choir. It's a Hasidisha choir. This is a very, very famous video that's on YouTube. It has something like 17 million views. And the when they sing the choir, they sing this pasuk. Oh, no, Danny, you're wrong. 18 and a half million. million. Views. Okay, sorry. It, they sing this pasuk. And then the next pasuk they sing is, Hine lo yanum below yushon shomer Israel. Right? Basically, um, Aleph. Um, that is from a different parak in Tikilim, 121. Um, oh, uh, uh, pasuk Dalid. Right. We're just saying like the guardian of, of Israel, meaning Hashem doesn't slumber or sleep. It wasn't until I read this stuff, because when I heard this song originally, I was puzzled by it because I was like, why are those two psukim together with each other? They don't come in order. They're from two different prakim. What's the connection between the two? And then I saw it in the daf and I said, oh, because if this was the song that they sang to keep him up, the second pasuk they're singing is who is the person who doesn't sleep? Hashem never sleeps. Right. And that so therefore the first Pasuk is the Pasuk they used to keep the Kohen Gadol up. And the second Pasuk is to remind us, yes, the Kohen Gadol maybe could be a little sleepy, but it is Hashem who protects us, who never sleeps. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and I was just thrilled to see it on this staff. Well, let's see if we can get it all. You know, I'll, I'm going to try to add it, you know, as soon as we're done here um, and you can listen. It's about five minutes of song. It's very meditative. And if we don't succeed, if you hear no music, as soon as we finish talking, then come find it on the Facebook page or on the Hadron website, you know, and we will give you the link there to be able to listen yourselves. And that's also, our, that's- also read the comments. The comments on the song are amazing. <laughs> that's our top discussion for the day thank you for joining us rank us review us where you get your podcast come talk to us on our facebook page and tell us what you think about these different elements of our daf the tzedukim and this truly beautiful song uh thank you to rabbi michelle farber for hosting us on the hadron website and until tomorrow go and learn <laughs> Shalom, Leboy, no boy, you must employ his money. Job shock at Show on the boy,
אם השם לא ישמור ויהיה, שוב שוקת שוי מת, אם השם לא ילמה בעיר שרון לו בוי נו בוי, אם השם לא ישמור יגיד, שוב שוקת שוי Show me, show me. 